You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I have the privilege this morning of introducing our guest speaker. His name is Kirby Myers, and he comes originally from the great state of Indiana. He was my pastor uh, for a number of years before going off to seminary. Uh, The Lord, you know, I I was praying for a good pastor. I was praying for somebody who would really help me and guide me and direct me in God's word, and he gave me Kirby. And so so I'm so thankful for that. I do want to, uh, in introducing him here, I was thinking, how do I introduce Kirby Myers? What do I say? I mean, I, I certainly have a number of funny anecdotes and stories and things that I could tell, but I think instead it would be appropriate to just remind you and bring you back to what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said in chapter 5, verse 12, he said, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And I was just thinking about how God has been so good to me personally to bring not one, not two, but at least three men of God, godly men in my life. I think of Pastor Jim and Pastor Bill and just how formative and helpful they have been and continue to be in my life, particularly when it comes to just growing in my faith and my love for the Lord. But before Jim and, Kirk, or Jim and, and Bill, God gave me Kirby. And I'm so thankful for this man. So I want you to put your hands together and give him a warm welcome as we show this man respect and honor as he opens up God's word for us today. Good morning, everyone. It is a joy for me to be with you all, and uh, I'm glad there are women in this church. I thought there were only men after this weekend um, at your men's summit, but that was a, a great time. I apologize to the men in advance. You have to hear me one more time before I fly back to Maryland. Uh, But this has been a great honor to be here. And uh, Hans, thank you for letting me come. It's been great. If you would take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. We are going to be in a familiar passage of Scripture this morning, looking at the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10. And I'll be teaching in, math, or in verses 17 through 22. So if you would read along with me as I read from the Word of God, the New American Standard Version. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inerrant, it is authoritative, it is inspired, it is infallible. And Lord, I pray we would receive it as such even here this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the first century, there were two men who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and they were willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. And one day they were preaching the gospel and the crowd rose up against them, much like Antifa. Is it too soon to say that around here? Okay, good, good. And the crowd seized them and uh, they, their robes were torn off them and the chief magistrates began to strike them with many blows. And they were thrown in prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them securely. And so, having received this command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at about midnight, these two prisoners, whose names were Paul and Silas, they were praising and singing hymns of praise to God. And the other prisoners, we read, were listening to them. Suddenly, there came a great earthquake. The magnitude of this quake was not measured or recorded, at least not by man, for the seismograph was not invented until 1880. But I would guess that this quake was at least a 7.0. I lived in Los Angeles for three and a half years, so I'm kind of an expert. I would also guess that the epicenter was just below this prison or close by because when the earthquake took place, we read that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. That's a powerful little tremor. And when the jailer awoke from his sleep, he saw that the prison doors were opened. And supposing that the prisoners had escaped and knowing that his punishment for allowing this to occur on his watch meant imminent death, he decided to take things into his own hands and drew his sword and was about to kill himself. And it was at this precise time that he heard someone cry out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And it was the voice of the Apostle Paul, one of the very prisoners that this jailer had been torturing. And the jailer called for the lights and he rushed into the cell. He saw that all the prisoners were indeed still there. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and said to them, this great question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the question that every evangelist dreams and prays to hear from an unbeliever when sharing the gospel with them. What must I do to be saved? This is what you hope for after you present the gospel of Jesus Christ, that someone would come up to you and ask you how they can be saved, how they can be born again. And that is my hope this morning, even as we are gathered together as a church, knowing that there could be someone here this morning or someone listening online, that someone would come to me or to you wanting to know how they can have the forgiveness of their sins and how they can have everlasting life. In the spring of 1993, I was driving back from the state of Kansas back to Indiana. I know those are two flyover states, but... Uh, it's the Midwest, and I had gone to Kansas to serve in a, in a friend's wedding there. And there were about 10 of us coming home, and I had to get back for uh, a graduation the next day. And so we drove through the night from Kansas to Indianapolis. Uh, 
one of the kids in our youth group was going to be giving a, 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 a salutatorian address, and I wanted to hear him and his opportunity to speak. And so when I got back to Indianapolis, I was very tired. I had maybe slept an hour all night, and I still had about a 90-minute drive back to Danville, Illinois, where I was living at the time. And when I got to I-74 to take the rest of that way to, to where I lived, I actually prayed, this is a dangerous prayer, I don't recommend it, but I actually prayed that God would give me a hitchhiker to pick up. Um someone to give a ride to, and someone I could talk to so I could stay awake. Uh, you should know I wasn't married then, and I did this every once in a while. I was young. I don't do it any longer. Please don't follow my example of my youth. But anyway, shortly after I got onto I-74, I spotted a hitchhiker on the side of the road. This is the thing I had prayed for, right at the Brownsburg exit, Hans, where I would live a few years later. And so I picked him up, and we began to talk, and And my goal was to share the gospel with him and and to stay awake while doing so. And so I asked him about his life. He looked very weathered. He had a small suitcase that he was carrying. And I asked him where he was going and what he had been doing. And and he answered me. And what he said, I will never forget. He looked at me in the eyes and said, you know what? My life really doesn't make sense. I was like, yeah. Yeah. This is good. That's exactly what I wanted you to say. And so I said, in my heart, I was saying, praise God. That's what I wanted to hear. This was my open door now to share the gospel with him. And, and now I was wide awake. And I asked him, can I tell you how my life makes sense? And he was like, sure. I mean, where's he going to go? You know, I'm giving him a ride. So he's got to listen to me. And so I began to share Christ with him. And I was just laying out the gospel message as best as I could but I was being careful to look straight ahead as I was driving because my eyes were heavy. I was very tired and I was not 100% alert. And I started talking to him about the goodness of God and about the sinfulness of man and about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place and how we can be saved if we simply place our faith and our trust in him and him alone. And as I got to the end of my gospel presentation, I looked over at this weathered man and he was fast asleep. And that was a Sunday morning, and I've been putting people to sleep on Sunday mornings ever since. (laughs) But as I talked to this man, I thought I had what was a possible open door to his heart. And so I shared the gospel with him, and I don't know how much that he heard and whether or not he believed, but here is the question for the day for all of us. If someone comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved? Or how can I have my sins forgiven? Or what must I do to inherit eternal life? What would you tell them? What did Jesus share with the man who asked him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so I want to look today with you in the Word of God to see what Jesus said in response. And I want to show you the four things that Jesus preached to this rich young ruler. Four things that Jesus preached to this rich young ruler. Number one, he preached the character of God. He preached the character of God. Look with me in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Friends, we know that Jesus was the greatest preacher to ever live. He was the greatest teacher to ever teach. 
And here he does what a, uh, what a rabbi would often do. He answers this young man's question with a question. Did you have a professor like that in high school or college? It's very frustrating. But this was a technique that rabbis would use. And so Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? And then Jesus teaches this young man that there is only one who is good, and that is God and God alone. This man obviously did not know who Jesus really was. He simply addresses him as good teacher. He did not realize who he was speaking with, that this was the Messiah. This was the Christ. This was the Son of God. Jesus began his presentation of the gospel with the character of God, with who God is beginning with the holiness of God, that God alone is good, that he is holy and separate, that he is separate from sinners, and that he is unstained by the world. I'm sure you know this because you're in a good church, but we need to be reminded that the gospel begins with God and his glory and not with man and his needs. That's really important that, that it should be repeated. The gospel begins with God and his glory and not with man and his needs. The church today is obsessed with consumerism. As people look for a church today, they ask the question, what can you do for me? And the church, unfortunately, has responded. But the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with God, the fact that God is holy, that he cannot and will not tolerate sin. The prophet Habakkuk tells us that his eyes are too pure to even look upon sin. Many gospel presentations begin, begin with, God loves you. And to a stranger who hears this, he says in his mind, yes, God is a God of love. He loves me, and therefore he would never harm me. Walter Chantry, who wrote a book many years ago called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, has this to say. To say to a rebel, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is terribly misinforming. The truth is that God is holy. Thus, he is angry with the sinner at this moment. His sword of wrath already hangs over the head of the guilty and will forever torment him unless he repents and trusts Christ. This plan is not so wonderful. God's redeeming love for sinners is found only in Christ and the sinner is out of Christ. The modern approach is diametrically opposed to Jesus' method with the rich young ruler. He did not soothe him in his ignorance, but stirred up fear by preaching that God is essentially good. Friends, the greatest preacher to ever live began with the character of God, and I believe that we must as well. Number two, the second thing that Jesus preached, he preached the law of God. He preached the law of God. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. When you read this in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus says, If you wish to enter life, if you want to have eternal life, all you have to do is keep the commandments. And Matthew records the rich young ruler asking Jesus, which ones? Well, Jesus is very gracious here. He, he could have said all of them. But he just gives them a few here that we read in the Gospel of Mark, six to be exact. 
The man who Jesus encountered here was a Jew, an Israelite. The law was given to Israel. I understand that we are not Israel. This is true. But what do we see from the law of God that applies to all men and all women, Jews and Gentiles alike? First of all, we see God's holy standard when we see the law. The fact that God is holy, that God demands absolute perfection. And then secondly, we see from the law our own failure to meet God's standard. Romans 3.20 says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law shows us that we are sinful, that we are incapable of keeping the law and pleasing a holy God. And we also see that even if we could keep nine out of ten, that would not be good enough. I remember years ago going through the Ten Commandments with my youth group back in Illinois and, and uh, just seeing how many of them did you do, how many of them have you kept? And uh, there's always that proud student. And this one girl said, hey, I'm nine for ten, 90 percent. That's an A minus in most places. That's pretty good. But James, the brother of Jesus, tells us in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. The church that I pastored in Indiana from 2002 to 2014, we had a group of men, like I hear some of the men here, who, who, lo who loved to go out and share the gospel. Um, not always door to door, but they would go to big places. They would go uh, the night before to the Indy 500, or they would go to shopping areas and, and just get in conversations with people and, and try to share the gospel with them. And some of these guys would like to take the people they talked to through the Ten Commandments. Nine of those ten are repeated in the New Testament. And again, they are there to reveal God's holy standard and His character. And so their, their goal was to talk with people and that God would show them their failure to meet God's standard, that they would become aware of their own sin and then see their need of a Savior. Well, look at the rich young ruler's reaction to the presentation of the law in verse 20. And he said to, them, to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes you will get a reaction like this from an unbeliever. Someone will say something like, Hey, I'm basically a good person, right? Or I've never killed anyone. I love that one. I've heard that a few times. Well, congratulations, you know. Wow, that's amazing. Me neither, you know. We must be the only two on earth, okay? Or I've not, been, I've not been that bad of a person. Or I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Tommy Nelson, who's been the pastor of Denton Bible Church outside of Dallas, Texas, once said this, it is easy to get someone saved. It is impossible to get someone lost. In other words, it's easy to get someone to make a profession of faith in Christ, to get someone to walk an aisle or to sign a card or to pray a prayer. I heard a guy one time, a pastor, in fact, say, give me 15 minutes with any man and I will get them to make a profession of faith. But it is impossible to get someone lost because that is the work of Almighty God. God must show them their own depravity and how their sin has separated them from God and that they are hopeless and helpless apart from the righteousness of Christ. 
Nevertheless, I think we should share the law of God with people and pray that God would remove their heart of stone and cause them to see their need of Jesus Christ. That they would see that all have sinned, that there is no one righteous, and all their good deeds are like filthy rags to the Lord. So Jesus first began with the character of God. Secondly, he preached the law of God. Thirdly, we see he preached repentance toward God. He preached repentance toward God. Look at verses 20 to 21. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And this is why Jesus is the greatest preacher ever, the greatest teacher ever, because he puts his finger on the man's sin. He could have challenged the man's reaction that is found here in verse, 40, or verse 20 when he says, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Once again, Jesus was very gracious to this young man. He could have easily shown this man how he had broken each of these commandments. He could have said to him, you say that you've never committed murder, but I would like to ask you, were you there that day when I gave the Sermon on the Mount and said, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court? And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You say that you've never committed adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This man claimed to have honored his parents from the time he was a youth. Jesus could have called in the parents, like, i got a surprise for you. Look who's here, right? What would they have said to seek, if Jesus would have sought out their opinion? He could have gone back to Psalm 50, 51, verse 5, where David says, Surely I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He could have explained the doctrine of original sin and how we are born with a sinful nature that is prone to sin and that we sin because we are sinners by nature. But that's not what Jesus did. It's almost like Jesus said, you know what, I'll give you those six. I'll believe that you've never physically killed anyone, that you've never committed physical adultery with another woman, that you've never stolen anything that you've never given false testimony, that you've never coveted, and that you've always honored your father and your mother. Great job, you're six for six, but listen, there is one thing that you still lack. You are incomplete. Matthew 19, 21, again in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus is saying you are incomplete because you are guilty of breaking the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. This man, his money and his possessions had become his God. He had placed them before the one true God who is altogether good. He loved his possessions more than he loved God and he treasured his things more than he treasured his neighbor. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 
37 to 38 verses that you know you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind the first and greatest commandment is to love god and to do so with all of your heart with all of your soul with all of your mind this ruler was guilty because he had failed to love god more than anything else and therefore he needed to repent and so Jesus calls him to repentance. And that's what we see here in verse 21. One thing you lack, Jesus says, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a 180 degree turn from the world unto Christ. I hear sometimes young people give their testimony and they don't mean to say this wrong, but they're saying, they say, you know, I was living for the world. I was living for the devil, living for myself. And then I did a 360. No, you don't want to do a 360. You want to do a 180. Okay, go the other direction. Don't do a circle. Okay. Repentance is turning. It's going the other way. And unfortunately, repentance has been left out many times of the gospel message today in the American gospel that just says, accept Christ, your life really doesn't have to change. Matthew 4, 17, really the first public words of Jesus according to the gospel of Matthew, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, that was the same message that John preached in Matthew chapter 3. Outside of his conversation, uh, with John the Baptist when he came to be baptized in the Jordan. Again, these are the first recorded public words of Jesus. Repent. Turn. Richard Owen Roberts wrote a book years ago called Repentance, the first word of the gospel. I just love the title. Listen to these verses, Mark 6, 7, and 12. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And they went out and preached that men should repent. <clears throat> Acts 2.38, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 17.30, Paul said, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Just a few years ago, it's not been that long, Robert Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral said this, I don't think that anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise that the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Well, the Bible is crystal clear. Repentance of sin is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Yes, sinners can come just as they are, but once they are converted to Christ, they must leave different from the way they came. I think the rich young ruler would have received today's American gospel with great joy. He could admit that he was short of God's glory. He would have accepted Jesus' help to get him into heaven. And he would have taken the free gift of eternal life. But the barrier to this man was when Jesus said, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. He was not ready to do this 
to get eternal life. Even though his initial question of Jesus was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He was willing to associate with Christ. I love here in the text that Mark tells us that he ran to Jesus. He sought him out. He was willing to associate with Christ, but he was unwilling to forsake his riches. I want you to see something in verse 21. I kind of read it quickly, and I think it can be missed if we don't really pay careful attention. But in verse 21, it says, Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus felt a love for him. I think that sometimes we are afraid to share with the lost their need of repentance, their absolute need of turning from their sin, their need to turn from their sinful life and their sinful choices. And we say that because we love people and we don't want to offend them. But friends, because Jesus loved him, he shared with him his need for repentance. This is a great lesson for all of us. If we truly love the lost, our friends, our family members, our classmates, our teammates, our co-workers, our neighbors, we will share with them their need of repentance. We will tell them and we will plead with them that they need to turn from their sin and flee to Christ. So Jesus began by preaching the character of God. Secondly, he preached the law of God. Thirdly, he preached repentance toward God. And fourth, he preached faith toward God's Son. He preached faith toward God's Son. Verse 21, the last part of the verse, Jesus says, come, follow me. Follow me. This is the most repeated command and saying that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Jesus is calling this man to deny himself and to identify with Christ and to follow Jesus. This is a command and not an option. You are either for Christ or you are against Him. Even if you believe that Jesus is one of many ways to heaven. Because Jesus said, I am the way. And no one comes to the Father. No one inherits eternal life except through me. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Well, how did this man respond to this incredible evangelistic teaching presentation from Jesus? Well, he didn't pray a prayer. He didn't sign a card. He didn't walk an aisle. He didn't go and be baptized. Verse 22 tells us what he did. Look at that. It says, But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And I want you to see what Jesus did here. Do you see what he did? He let him go. He let him go. He didn't chase him down. He didn't say, oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Let me make it a little easier for you. Instead, he turned to his disciples and gave them another opportunity to learn. And he said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Mark Dever is the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. When we first moved from Indianapolis to Annapolis, we, 
we attended there for a while and we became members. Uh, it became too far of a drive and it was really hard to get involved, but I have great respect for him. And he tells the story of how once after a Sunday morning service several years ago, a, a visitor came up to him and took him by the hand and pulled him close to himself and said, Dr. Dever, I just want you to know that that was one of the best sales presentations I've ever heard in my life. But there was only one problem, he said, you didn't close the sale. Well, many gospel presentations today and, and the evangelists behind many of those presentations seem more concerned about closing the sale or pushing for a decision than for the transformation of the human heart. Some modern-day methods of evangelism would be critical of Jesus' approach here in the Gospels, that Jesus did not close the deal, that he should not have let this man get away, that he should have pressed him for a decision. There's a book entitled Soul Winning Made Easy. Just got to love that title. Written by a man named C.S. Lovett. And in this little book, Lovett laid out a soul-winning plan based on sales techniques of the time when he wrote it in 1959. He says, you are in command, talking to Christians as salespeople. He says, the trained soul winner can bring his prospect to a decision for Christ. There is no middle ground as he moves with surety right up to the point of salvation. It is his conversation control that makes this possible. He knows exactly what he is going to say each step of the way and can even anticipate his prospects' responses. He is able to keep the conversation focused on the main issue and prevent unrelated materials from being introduced. The controlled conversation technique is something new in evangelism and represents a real breakthrough in soul winning. Lovett then instructed the earnest Christian about tools needed and then he gave some helpful hints. This is real. It's really in the book. I read it myself. I didn't believe it at first. But he begins by saying, get your prospect alone. At one point, he taught how to press for the decision, even illustrating his point with photographs. And listen to what he says here. Enjoy this. This is great. He says, when you have finished presenting the gospel, lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder or arm. And with a semi-commanding tone of voice, say to him, bow your head with me. Note, he says, note, do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first. Out of the corner of your eye, you will see him hesitate at first. Then as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down. <laughs> your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation and you will know when his heart yields. Bowing your head first causes ter terrific psychological pressure. Isn't that sad? Mark Dever in response says, how many churches today are full of people who have been psychologically pressured in such a manner, but not truly converted by the Spirit of God? And what about Christians who have done this kind of evangelism? Have we filled our churches full of people who responded when they were eight years old because they sincerely wanted to please mom and dad, who bowed their heads, closed their eyes, and even came down to the front, but who have not truly repented and believed. What have we done to the gospel in America by the way we have evangelized? Friends, fellow believers in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, 
who desire to be like Christ and conform to His image, we need to be doing evangelism, no doubt. But we need to be doing biblical evangelism. Evangelism that honors God the Father and exalts the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to do this, I believe we need to share what Christ shared, to preach the character of God, to preach the law of God, to preach repentance toward God, and to preach faith toward God's Son. I want to conclude just with some application here. Mark Dever, in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, gives some biblical guidelines on how to evangelize. And these are really good. Number one, he says, tell people with honesty that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, but it will be costly. God's grace is free, but it is not cheap. It will cost you your life, and people need to know that. Number two, he says, tell people with urgency that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, but they must decide now. Now is the day of salvation. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow, right? Your life is like a vapor. It is here today, and it is gone tomorrow. Thirdly, tell people if they repent and believe the good news, they will be saved. However difficult it may be, it is all worth it. It was Jim Elliott, the missionary to Ecuador, who was speared to death over 60 years ago, who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Number four, Mark Dever says, use the Bible. What a great idea. Jesus used the Word of God, quoting the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. As Jesus was tempted by the devil after fasting for 40 days, he quoted from Deuteronomy, it is written, use the Bible. We must use the Bible in evangelism, for the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Number five, realize that the lives of individual Christians and of the church as a whole are a central part of evangelism. Our lives individually and corporately as a church congregation should give credibility to the gospel that we proclaim. And then finally he says, remember to pray. We must remember the importance of prayer in all of this and be reminded that we cannot save anyone, can we? I remember many years ago I was at a wedding and I saw this guy and I had known him when, he, when we were both younger and, and he was asking me what I was doing and I told him I was working in ministry and, and he said, oh yeah, he goes, uh, I remember back in third grade, Janet Parks, my Sunday school teacher, she saved me. <laughs> I said, no, no, no one saves you except Christ alone. We can't save anyone. And that should give you great joy in evangelism, that it's not up to you and to your clever speech and the things that you say. I remember one time uh, going to one of my FCA huddles at Fisher High School, Fisher, Illinois. And I, I went there and I shared the gospel with these young people. And I was driving home. I had about an hour drive and I was kind of thinking through my talk. And I started to remember that I forgot to say this verse and this verse. And it kind of, I was really sad. I was like, oh my goodness, I forgot to say that to them. What if because of my presentation, because of my failure to say this or that, there will be people there who will never be saved? And God reminded me that his word will never return void. 
it will go out and accomplish whatever he desires. Lord, friends, we, we succeed when we open our mouths and declare the word of God. Amen? It's the word of God that convicts and brings salvation, not us. Praise God, salvation is of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible narrative in Scripture. So thankful that this conversation was recorded and written down, and we can read about it here in the Gospel of of Mark and see this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Lord, we can observe what he said to him and, and how he answered the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Lord, thank you for the model that you are for us in evangelism and how you shared the character of God, beginning with the fact that God is good and holy and perfect, lacking nothing. And how you preach, Lord, the law of God. Because, Lord, when we see the law, when we put ourselves up against the law, we see that you have a holy standard and we have all fallen short. We have missed the mark. All of us have. All have sinned. There is no one righteous, not even one. And Lord, you preach repentance toward God's Son. That, Lord, we have to repent. We must turn from our sins. We are born at odds with you. We are your enemies. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are dead in our sins. We must turn and run the other direction and run toward you. And Lord, you preach faith toward your Son. Follow me. Lord, that we would give up our lives, that we would entrust our lives to you and to you alone, understanding that man cannot save himself but can only be saved by the blood and by the body of Jesus Christ. Lord, for us who know you today, remind us of the salvation that you worked in our hearts. Remind us, Lord, that salvation is truly of you and not of ourselves. We have nothing to boast about except in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, I would pray if there's anyone here today that has never trusted in you or someone listening at home, watching online, that today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, that you would break them, that you would cause them to see that God, you are holy, that they are sinful, that Christ is their only hope, and that you might grant them repentance of sin and faith to believe in your son, that they might too have everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.